Good morning. My name is Deidre. I'll be reading the text this morning. Um, you can follow along um, with me. Um, you can, it'll be up on the screens. Um, you can use the YouVersion app on your phone or device, or you can open your Bibles um, to Isaiah chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 26 through 30. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they will come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Thanks, Deidre. So this morning we're continuing in our series, uh, Tried in Truth. And uh, this morning the series is, I'm sorry, the message is entitled, Upheld, Upheld. Um, as Meredith has already mentioned, uh, next week is our one-year celebration, and so today we're wrapping up our summer series, uh, which has been through the first five chapters of Isaiah. And uh, I encourage you, if you have a, a scripture journal that you've uh, grabbed along the way, to hang on to it, uh, because we're going to be picking up with uh, Isaiah chapter 6 next summer. We're going to continue through uh, Isaiah throughout the summers, and so uh, hang on to that. Uh, there as I was uh, considering the, the message this morning, I thought of um, a couple of different things that happened throughout uh, my childhood. And I actually wasn't really like a super rebellious kid. That might be hard for some of you to believe. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I, um, for, for the most part, maybe it was fear-based or something. But for the most part, I was a pretty obedient uh, kid and kind of uh, did what I was told and, and obeyed for the most part. Um, but there are definitely times that, uh, that I didn't and moments that I can point to that were more traumatic than others, some of which I've shared before you in the past. Um, there was one time in particular that um, I had a couple friends over and we were doing something, you know, fairly typical. We were just playing catch with the football. And uh, I grew up uh, on, on some acreage, but there was a, a little over an acre that my uh, family mowed. And so there was a lot of lawn that we could play in. And uh, my dad said, hey, I don't want you to play catch in the, the front of the house. Just go out into the, the larger part of the yard, play catch out there, do whatever you want. And I was thinking, why? Like, what's, what's so unique about not being able to play in the front? And so I literally said, well, why? Is there anything wrong with it? He's like, oh, I'll just tell you later. Just, just don't go out there. I'm thinking, whatever. If I want to go out there, I'll go out there. I mean, it's a yard. What's the big deal? We're playing football. And so I'm thinking, does he think we're going to do something that might be dangerous? It was the closer part to the house. And I may or may not have shot a BB gun into the siding from there. Uh, and so there were some things that I thought maybe uh, my father was concerned about us doing that maybe we shouldn't be in proximity to the house. And he didn't realize that we were just doing something simple, like playing catch with a football. And so poor little dad, he doesn't understand me. And so uh, I can play football wherever I want. And so in fact, the place that I'd like to play football is exactly where I'm not allowed. 
right? It's funny when we're uh, in different seasons of life, it seems like the whole world is against us. I remember the teenage years, specifically my teenage years, it seemed like my parents would just kind of come up with ways to destroy my life, you know? Like, oh, you're having fun? You're not allowed. Like, wait, but I want to. No, you're done. Oh, you like hamburgers? No more hamburgers. Like, what? I, uh, I don't understand. Like, oh, you want to stay up later? Yeah, bedtime, you know? And so it's like, uh, it's a weird mentality, really, and it's through our own perspective that we just think in those moments, like, that they're obsessing as if my parents would gather together and be like, how can we destroy Claude's life today? And be like, well, I don't know. I just want to control him. So let's find a new way to do that. No playing catch in this part of the yard. Fine, evil father, I will do what I want. And so I just thought, no big deal. We'll just play football out here. And so I had a couple of friends that were outside and they went out to the front and I had that moment of like where I could say, hey, we could literally play with 0.75 acres of the yard this way. But no, you guys are out there. Let's play catch here. Also in the back of my mind thinking I could also be able to tell them it was their idea. You know, sorry, dad, it was their idea. And so we start playing catch and uh, literally as we're throwing the football, I'm thinking, there is no reason why we should not be allowed to play here. I have no idea what is wrong with my dad. And so we're playing catch and we're laughing. I'm thinking in the back of my mind, he has such control issues. Like, what is his deal? Don't play in the front yard. Ooh. Like, is the lawn special? And so we're sitting there playing, playing, playing. And uh, all of a sudden the ball gets thrown up into this tree. And uh, as it gets thrown up into the tree, we kind of watch it fall. And one of us catches it. And then we're like, oh, we can kind of play a game here. We throw the football up into the tree play a game on catching it, and I won't tell you about the stupidity of the game. I'll just say it was fun. Anyway, so we, uh, we throw the ball up one time, and the weirdest thing happened. As, uh, as the football is coming down, this part in particular, we see all of a sudden one football turn into two footballs. And so all of a sudden, there's two footballs falling. You're like, what in the world is going on? And so like, dude, do you see there's two up there? Like, I don't know. Was there one trapped up in the tree? And so we're watching and following this football and another football. It's like the Lord has shined upon my disobedience. Say, thus, Claude, you shall get not one, but two footballs for your disobedience. And so as we're going along, this football comes down. And so we catch the one and then the other one goes to fall and we go to catch it. And I'm standing right next to my friend and it's actually a hornet's nest a little bit larger than a football that hits both of our shoulders, splits open, and hornets start engulfing us. And so we start screaming because we're getting stung immensely. It fell on our shoulders, so hornets down our shirts, up our shirts, down our shorts, and we have a pool. And so we start running for the pool. And so I run faster than everybody else. So I run and jump over the side, and I get stung the least. My other friends get stung as well, and uh, one of my friends uh, ends up, uh, you know, with an allergy to bees and almost dies. So that's fun. And so he started swelling. I was like, wow, you don't look good. Maybe we should bring you to the hospital. Um, and so he survived. Spoiler alert, he survived. Uh, but, you know, deathly allergic to bees. And so the moral of the story was my dad knew there was a hornet's nest in the tree. And he didn't want us in the front yard, so we wouldn't get stung immensely and potentially die. Uh, which, honestly, that would have been way worse for a lot of reasons. In either case, the, the, uh, the reason I share that story with you today isn't to simply talk about how sometimes people that direct us to do things have a perspective that we don't. But more importantly, to ask this question, how do you respond to getting caught in the act of disobedience? How do you respond to getting caught in the act of disobedience? We're standing in this pool, 
and there are little bodies of hornets. Well, I shouldn't say little bodies because, of course, in my mind, they were like the size of hands, you know? They were ginormous hornets. And so these, these hornets are kind of floating up to the surface of this pool as we are literally just unashamedly disrobing and screaming as we're getting... If you don't know a lot about hornets, they don't sting and die like a yellow jacket or something like that. They just keep on drilling you. And so... Um, as we're sitting there in immense pain, we look up and the sliding glass door opens. My dad walks out and he's looking at us as we're literally just throwing clothes off. And my, uh, my shortest friend uh, hit the pool twice before he could get enough of his body up over the side and roll in. And so he has by far the most uh, amount of bee stings on him. And uh, my dad goes, huh, so you guys played in the front yard? <laughs> I'm like... No. Oh, you meant you meant don't play in that part of the front yard. See, I didn't I didn't understand and they were there and they wanted to and he's like, "Well, that's fine. I mean, you're dealing with it, right?" And uh of course, we're screaming in pain. Some of us taking it better than others. Uh, you know, Eric may or may not have been there. Um but uh, in either case, uh, our friend is, is literally writhing in pain. And, and my dad looks at him and he goes, uh, he's swelling up pretty good there. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, we, I mean he got stung the most because he had some cotton in his shirt and stuff. Like, yeah, you doing all right? And he's like, no, I feel like my tongue's swelling. Yeah. So I almost lost my friend that day. Um, and and the, the, the point of the story here is how is it that we respond in the midst of disobedience? In the midst of that disobedience, I just was coming up with excuses. I was trying to justify, trying to explain away why it is that I did what I did. So how do you respond when you're caught in the act of disobedience? You see, the issue isn't if you'll disobey. As humans, whether you're a Christian or not, and I realize that the room is filled with a lot of different people ranging all the way from committed Christ follower to complete skeptic of whether or not there is a God and everyone in between. Regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, if you have blood pumping through your veins this morning, you will disobey. We all disobey. The issue is not whether or not we'll disobey, it's how we'll respond when we disobey. When we disobey. There's really only two root answers to this question, two root responses of how it is that we'll respond in the midst of disobedience. One is that you'll be broken and remorseful. That in the midst of being caught in the act of disobedience, there'll be this epiphany moment and you'll realize, I am so sorry, I shouldn't have, you know, I, I thought better, I should have never done that. This idea of being broken and remorseful. But the, the second reaction that is most typical if you go to a root response is an attempt to justify or explain your actions. When caught in the act of disobedience, you try to justify. If you have kids, this alone could be sheer entertainment, right? You could pop popcorn and just listen to the excuses. No, I didn't because the bird and the dog and the trees, they were, and you're like, yeah, it's ridiculous, you know? Just excuses, justifying, explaining actions. So on one hand, you have a broken and remorseful response to disobedience. On the other, you have justification and explanation. I want to submit to you, that both root responses have the same motivation, self-preservation, self-preservation. Broken and remorseful responses are because you are either suffering the consequences of your disobedience or you're about to. 
And so in the midst of of realizing the implications of the decision that you made, you become remorseful. You become broken. Or if you're fearing the consequences. That's more typical uh, with, with kids, I think, is like in the moment, they're like, wait, there's consequences? I am so sorry, dad. I totally didn't mean to. Like, I don't know. Like, you've almost got a tear out, kid. Keep trying. You know, maybe I'll believe this. So there's, there's that reaction, but the other is you're attempting to justify and explain your actions in hopes that you can somehow avoid the consequences. Is there some way that you can explain yourself out of this situation so you don't reap the consequences of your disobedience? But either way, it's about preservation of self. It's about preservation of self. Now, you may think that being broken and remorseful is the better response to being caught in disobedience. And of course, I would agree. It's a better response, especially if it's authentic. But it's still about self. It's still about self-preservation. Remember, I'm talking about being caught in the act of disobedience. I'm not talking about before the act of disobedience. I'm talking about you've already made the decision to do what it is you want to do, even though you've been told not to. And this illustration, although I I shared an illustration that was rather humorous about my father, the fact is you can go through an example of an illustration with a boss. Disobedience in the midst of, of school in the midst of anybody in authority, in fact, maybe even disobedience in your relationship with God. That you get to a place where you say, you know what, God, I don't think you know better about this than I do. I don't know if you're just some angry God up in heaven trying to control me, but I know more about this situation. Trust me, I got this. I got this. So just to recap, we all disobey. And all of our responses to that disobedience is to preserve ourselves, to preserve ourselves, what we want. So we're all sinners, only concerned about ourselves. We, like Israel, deserve the wrath of God. What a cheerful way to wrap up this series, right? (laughs) Let's talk about some wrath. How fun. And, and the, the text that, that Deidre read this morning as we dig into this text, I know that we're about ready to conclude the series and, and excited about our one-year celebration and all the things that next week is going to hold. And so uh, it seems a little depressing to kind of wrap things up on a text that seems like, wow, so God's just saying Israel's going to be destroyed for all the things they've done. But what you and I need to understand is that in the same way Israel had to realize the depth of their sin and the brokenness in chapters one through five that we've covered this summer, before Isaiah could then talk about God's grace in chapters six through 66 for the rest of the book, we need to understand the depth of our own brokenness and sin. We don't like to talk about that. It's not a topic that we enjoy. Let's talk about how broken we are. We want to talk about the things we do right. And so you might look at this pericope, this section of thought in the text and and simply see the wrath of God, but there's something much deeper that Isaiah is communicating here. In verse 26, it says this, he will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily they come. God whistles and judgment comes quickly. 
That's what we learned about the the text that was read this morning, that, that judgment comes as quickly as God directs it. And what we learn here is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's above all. Sometimes culture communicates through depictions and movies that we watch or shows that we may engage in, and this idea that uh, good and evil are, are equal, and that they're in some way forces of opposition that are functioning at some, evil, uh, some even level of good versus evil. But if you believe the Bible to be truth, and I realize that there may be some in the room that don't, but if you believe the Bible to be truth, then you must understand that even Satan is a created being functioning in rebellion against God. Now, I'm not the type of person that's like, you know, Satan around every corner, although those people super entertain me, right? Be like, well, you know, Satan's got me. You know, he's having his way. I'm like, really? Whole universe, Satan decided to make sure your milk was bad this morning for breakfast. Yeah, Woo! he's giving it to me. Yeah, tricky old devil. He's coming just for you, messing you over. You know, so I'm not the type of person that finds every negative moment and somehow attributes it to some hyper-spirituality, but the reality is there is some heavenly reaction. There are spirits and principalities. There is Satan. We know that. But we know that he's a created being functioning in rebellion Against God. Now, the reason why I'm focusing on created is because if God is the creator of all and Satan is a created being, then this isn't good versus evil on some equal playing field. God wins. He is the creator. He is above all. He's in charge. God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's not equal with Satan. In fact, Satan knows the end of the story. He loses. Spoiler alert. <laughs> And yet functioning in rebellion, God's ways are higher than our ways. His perspective, different than our perspective. These are things that may roll off of our tongue if we've had any experience um, to Christian circles. This idea of like, hmm, Alpha and Omega, (laughs) beginning and the end. Hey, listen, he is a good God all the time. All the time, God is good. You know, you're like, that thing, if you've ever witnessed that, no? All right. Outstanding. In either case, uh, <laughs> it's super fun if you have. If not, kind of lost, and that's okay. Um, the fact is, we say all this Christian jargon, but do we really realize that if Satan is a created being living in rebellion against God, and that hell was created as consequences for rebellion against God, that when we choose to be the God of our own lives, that we are in essence living in outright rebellion against God. Do you you realize the depth of the consequences of the decisions that we make? That we're really falling on the Satan side of this whole thing, right? Sounds super cheery. Glad you came to church this morning. (laughs) But it's something that we need to comprehend and understand when when we come to grips with the depth of what it is that we deserve. We are created beings wrestling with the decision of whether or not we will live in rebellion against God. That's the reality of it. Will we disobey the direction of the Lord every day, every minute? Or will we make a decision every morning to live in submission to what it is that God's directing us to do. Judgment is his. He's above all. 
And in this text, the consequences of Israel's rebellion is made clear. But we have something to learn about their condition based on the the description of their invaders. In previous weeks, we've learned the reality that, that God, much like a farmer, has created a perfect environment for the people of Israel to flourish. And uh, there's a comparison of a, of a vineyard, a farmer keeping a vineyard, and that the, the people of Israel are the vineyard and that the, the life that they are producing, the fruit that they are producing, instead of being these beautiful grapes, that the fruit of their life is actually stink fruit or wild grapes, that even though God has done everything right, the end result is still outright rebellion. And so what is the descriptors of the invaders that are coming? Verse 29 starts to paint an amazing picture here. It says, their roaring is like a lion, like young lions that roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. So we're learning that the people that live in outright rebellion of God, rebellion to God, rebellion against God, I'm looking at my wife because she's right. So whatever that should be, however you say that in the English language, is that as they're living out their rebellion, they're like prey before a lion. The imagery here is very, very strong. In the original Hebrew, the the word for roar actually means a pouncing roar. So it's not just like this roar that frightens you. It's the roar that you hear as a lion is beginning to pounce on its prey before devouring it. So that's some powerful imagery. The, The word here, young lion, does not mean like a cub, you know, like a little cub, like rawr. Like, oh, look at him pounce. He's coming for us. Isn't that cute? Oh, I caught him. (laughs) You know, a young lion uh, means something in this culture. So a young lion is not a cute little lion that we pet. A young lion is actually an aggressive, fierce lion in its prime, as strong as it gets. And so to the people of Israel living in lion-infested land, they realize what what Isaiah is talking about here is this strong, fierce, in the prime of life, scared to the soles of your feet, pouncing, roaring lion coming to attack its prey. Powerful imagery. And the word for growl means satisfied. Wow, that is disturbing. Carried off and none can rescue. The end of the verse. And none can can rescue. Isaiah is painting a picture here that is a horrifying picture that would resonate with the people of that day. A strong lion in the prime of its life, roaring as it begins to leap on its prey and then begins to growl with, satis- with a satisfied growl as it begins to consume its prey. Real disturbing. But what we need to pick up is the end of that verse and none can rescue. They realize through this imagery that when a lion in the prime of its life pounces and begins to growl on its prey, there's no interceding. There's no way that the person that has fallen victim to this lion can then be rescued. It's a done deal. Its prey is helpless. It's over. Then he shifts his imagery into verse 30. Verse 30 says, 
They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkness by its cloud. So the lion roar turns into the roaring storm. And so a distressed sailor out on the, the water begin to being battered by the storm would then look to a safe harbor to see where it is that they could run aground to avoid this storm and somehow save their life. And they look to land and find darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. Pictures of helplessness. You will be destroyed. What Isaiah is talking about now that is leading up to the conclusion of verse five is saying, listen, you've been playing this game with God. You've been going through the spiritual motions. You've been acting like a good church going nation, but the reality is you're wicked. The fruit of your life is evident of it. And there is consequences coming. You will be destroyed. No one can help. Judgment is coming. You ever feel like that in life? Like a lose-lose situation? No matter how hard we try, we're on the losing side of this. We try to, to play the part to look right, and yet it turns out there's consequences for that. You try to justify the disobedience of your life only to avoid the consequences that are completely impending. Whether it's a situational, environmental issue, or if it's a spiritual issue, we try so hard, no matter how hard we try to overcome our own rebellion, we continue to fall victim to the sin or the disobedience of our lives, destined to reap the consequences. This morning, I want to tell you that there's the tried and then there's the truth. You may feel helpless. And like I said, we're painting a picture of almost sounds depressing to this reality that we've come to the end of ourselves. If, if we all live in disobedience and our motive in responding to the disobedience of our life is wickedness and self-preservation, either by justification or by remorse, then really we're all kind of doomed. <laughs> but Psalm 121 verses one through two says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The original context of this psalm is that it was sung. It was actually sung by people that were on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They sung it to encourage themselves to continue in the journey. Then in the midst of the difficulty of everything that would happen as they would begin their pilgrimage, they would sing this song to remind their hearts and their minds that no matter what difficulty comes, God is on their side. That their help comes from the Lord. Be encouraged on your journey. It's interesting that a nation ultimately reaping the consequences of their own sin and their own broken nature would then at some point sing about how their help comes from the Lord. Listen, we aren't helpless. It's not nearly as depressing as it sounds this morning. It's depressing only to understand the current condition of our hearts and lives. But we aren't helpless because in our disobedience, Jesus lived the sinless life that we can't. And he died the death that we deserve. 
You see, in God's sovereignty, he satisfied his own wrath. He made himself helpless on a cross so that when you are in the storms, when I am in the storms of the journey of this life, feeling like we might literally be destroyed, that something much stronger than us is devouring us, that no one can help, that we're at the depth of the difficulty of despair that this life can deal out, that we could look up and declare, my help comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord. When you try When I try, we end up helpless. But the truth is, we're upheld. We're upheld because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, disobedience is an act of distrust. Think about that for a second. When we disobey, we're saying, I trust myself on this more than you. That day when I was with my father and he was giving me direction, I was essentially saying, I know better than you. Now, in the end, it played out to where it turns out he knew stuff I didn't. Isn't that interesting? It probably touches too close to home for most of us. If you're in relationship with God, you've been in moments where you're like, God, I know how this plays out. I should do this. Like, you shouldn't do that. It's interesting how we want to position ourselves as the authority and God of our own lives. How we think things should play out. How we clearly know better. As if we are the creator of the heavens and the earth. As if we are the beginning and the end. As if our perspective trumps the perspective of an almighty God. It's absurd. And yet we continue. Every single one of us. Disobedience is an act of distrust. When we disobey, we're saying, I trust myself on this more than you. And trust flows out of relationship. Flows out of relationship. Your capacity to trust someone else is directly connected to the relationship that you have with that person. And so as a teenager, I was just thinking, maybe my dad really is about just making me unhappy. I'm going to do what I want. And maybe you in a season of your life, in the midst of disobedience or difficulty, what you're really declaring reveals the relationship that you do or don't have with God. Our bent towards disobedience is an indicator of our relationships. So how's your relationship with the Lord? You see, This text this morning, it requires something from us. Say that every week here at Centerway, it's great to have a a fun service and we we love the opportunity to be together. But if all you've had at the end of the day is a great service and you leave this place the way you came in, then what is it really all about? So I want to challenge you. What, what What do the words of Isaiah at the end of chapter five that at face value looks just like a wrath passage, what does it require of you and me this morning? What are you going to do with this this morning? I'm going to ask you a a question, an application question that I want to encourage you to consider as you leave this place. The question is this, what next step will I take? What next step will I take? 
I want to encourage you to consider individually or if you're with people to even ask them what their next step will be. And the reality is, is as we as a preaching and teaching team kind of sat together and talked about this, we, we wanted people as they came to the conclusion of their summer in looking at this text and as we move forward into the fall to consider what does it look like to place trust in the Lord? What does it look like to live a life upheld? That in the midst of, of seeming helplessness, that we could trust the Lord. And so this morning, if you've never come into relationship with Christ, maybe the response for you looks like surrendering your life and allowing Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life. Maybe the next step you need to take, maybe the application for you is to say, God, I'm trying so hard. Tried, tried, tried. And it's just this cycle. Sure, I get more stuff, but the, the stuff doesn't bring me joy. The moments are fleeting, and at the end of the day, I still feel empty and broken. I'm trying to fill a God-shaped hole in my life. And so for this morning, for you, maybe the application and the next step you need to take is to cross that line of salvation. And it's as simple as praying a prayer in your seat. I'm not going to you know, embarrass you or make you respond publicly. I'm going to simply encourage you, if that's you, if that's the next step you need to take, that you just pray a prayer in the quietness of your mind right now, just letting the Lord know that you're a sinner. But because of the life he lived, the death he died, you could ask him to be the Lord and leader of your life. He'd forgive you of your sins. Maybe that's your next step. For others of us in this room, as we consider this application, maybe the next step, maybe you're saying, listen, I've crossed that line of faith, but you've never gone public with that decision. And maybe for you, the next step is water baptism. We have a water baptism coming up in the next couple weeks, two weeks actually. And so if you're interested in, in being a part of that water baptism and joining the others that have already signed up, you can sign up online on our Next Steps uh, page or at the end of service. I'll talk more about that. For others of you, maybe it's time for you to enter into a discipleship relationship. We have a one-on-one -on -one discipleship opportunity where someone will spiritually coach you for eight weeks and come alongside you in your spiritual journey. And maybe that's your next step. This is the first week of circles, as you saw the video at the beginning of the service. And so this is the first week of sign-up for circles. It'll be the next couple of weeks. We have circles gathering in homes, and maybe the next step is to take a risk and to say, hey, let's, let's sign up for that. Maybe it's to attend a clarity workshop, put your hand in the circle and say, hey, I, I want to be a part of Centerway. I want to I want to move forward with this body. I want to make official my commitment. I want to steward my time, talent, and treasure and lean into all that God has for me. Maybe your next step is to connect with a body of believers that are just living forward. I don't pretend to know what your next step is, but I know that there's a next step to take. And I know that the text requires something of every single one of us, whether it means that your application is to say, I need to increase my proximity to God, which is a lot of the examples that I gave, or if it means I need to increase my proximity to others that are serving God. You see, we live life in community. And so maybe for you, it looks like coming alongside and committing to a community. Maybe you're sitting there and saying, listen, I'm doing all that. Like, what is my application? Like, I'm, I'm crushing it. I'm 
whew, I'm so awesome. <laughs> Which, by the way, if you're saying that you have other issues about self-righteousness, we can talk about another week. <laughs> Just kidding. But maybe if you're sitting there and you're saying, listen, I've been water baptized. I've given my life to the Lord. I've, I've, I'm part of circles. I'm serving. I'm engaged in all these things. What, what is it that I can be considering? And I want to encourage you to consider this morning that maybe your application is to live more missionally. Does it look like an invitation to someone to say, hey, why don't, why don't you come out to, to church with me? Or why don't you go check out another church? This isn't about building a kingdom here. It's not about centerway busting at the seams. It's, it's about the idea of people that are far from God finding hope and help in the midst of the darkest moments of their life. And if that means drawing them to another church, then, then so be it. If it's, if it's a Bible-believing church, I'm, I'm not talking about building this place. I'm talking about living on mission. And so this morning, I just want to challenge you, what is your application? What does it look like? What is your next step? I want to ask you just to, to bow your heads and if you want, you can close your eyes so you're not distracted by the movement of the room. With your head bowed, I want to challenge you to consider some of the next steps that I've mentioned and maybe one that the Holy Spirit's revealing to you that I, that I didn't mention. Something that you need to consider. We're about to go into a response time. And uh, as we go into this response time, we're going to sing songs and declare the goodness of God. And as we do that, I want you to continue to consider what the next step for you to take looks like. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we surrender to you. We risk trusting you. We admit the, the disobedience of our own lives, our propensity to lean into that which we think we know. And so, Lord, we surrender our lives to you this morning. We simply declare ourselves available. And so we pray that your presence would remain in this place. Lord, that as we sing songs of response to you, that it would be a sweet sound to your ear. We simply declare ourselves available.